Okay, good morning again. We're going to switch gears and talk about another prevention strategy, that is PrEP. A lot has happened over the last year, and I'm going to review that data with you this morning. But first, a question. Do you have a patient who has taken PrEP? Yes, no, or not applicable? Okay, interesting. I think I asked this question last year. It was less than half this response. So 22%, a fifth of the room, almost a quarter of the room, have had a patient who has taken PrEP. And a corollary question, have you yourself prescribed PrEP? Okay, interesting. So 10% of the room has prescribed it. 20% of you have patients that have taken it, which begs the question, where did the other 10% get it? We'll maybe address that in the Q&A. So PrEP is something that we need to know about. Why? So the number of new infections per year in the United States continues to be about 50,000 Americans are newly infected with HIV every single year. If that statistic isn't sobering enough, this is from a JAMA article, this line is the number of infections. You can see that that 50,000 figure continues pretty stably all the way back to about 1990. So despite all the progress that we've made, in HIV in terms of treatment, we can see that we are not effectively preventing new infections. They've essentially been at the same level for at least 20 years in this country. So we need, as everyone would agree, new strategies for prevention of HIV. Among those is PrEP, or pre-exposure prophylaxis, which can be defined as an, that an HIV uninfected person who is at risk for HIV takes antiretrovirals themselves. And the thinking here is that by having ART in the bloodstream and the genital tract, that HIV, if encountered, may be unable to establish infection. And this is another example of antiretroviral therapy working as HIV prevention. So treatment as prevention being the other major strategy. So we have today 27 drugs approved for the treatment of HIV infection. We might think about all of these as potential PrEP candidates. But the ones that have emerged are tenofovir either with or without FTC. And why is that? Well, among the 27 drugs, one really wants antiretrovirals that are potent, safety, is key because we're talking about giving these not for to treat a disease but to prevent a disease, tolerability and convenience. So all four of these being very important characteristics of candidate PrEP agents. Uh, so tenofovir and the co-formulated tenofovir FTC really emerged among the currently available drugs. However, there are potential concerns with tenofovir 
with or without FTC, and these will be familiar to you from the treatment world. First of all, this is used widely. It's a first-line treatment for HIV infection, as everyone knows. So do you really want to use the same drugs to prevent a disease that you also commonly use to treat a disease? That, that's an ongoing discussion. Drug resistance is a related issue. If you are inducing resistance in a community, then your first-line treatments with the same agents, of course, won't work as well. We're familiar with the toxicities of tenofovir, um, uncommon, but occur both renal and bone. And then, of course, the cost of giving a preventative medication, in this case, the co-formulated, would be more than $10,000 a year. And can we afford to uh, prevent HIV infection at those rates? So where did, uh, another uh, avenue of research that supported taking a look or clinical trials of tenofovir um, with or without FTC was an animal model. Um, and this was published now uh, four years ago by investigators at the CDC. So it's looking at the effect of daily and intermittent PrEP in monkeys and using a shiv um, rectal challenge. And what you can see here is small groups of monkeys. In red are untreated macaques, so did not receive PrEP. And you can see here that all, after uh, several weeks, all of the macaques in that group were infected. Um, the other strategies were to look at tenofovir with or without FTC, and you can see varying results, but in each case, more infections were prevented in the monkeys that received daily tenofovir or FTC. And then you can see one group <clears throat> actually rises to the top, with no infections at all, and those are who receive the combination of daily tenofovir and FTC. These are small groups of monkeys, but this paved the way for clinical studies of the same drugs. <clears throat> there are an enormous number of oral PrEP studies really around the world, 14 studies and projects in up to 16 countries as listed here. And you can see North America, South America, Europe, Africa, and Asia all represented. If you add them all up, more than 32,000 HIV negative people have volunteered to be in PrEP studies worldwide. Um, all with the same strategy so far, tenofovir with or without FTC. So an enormous amount of effort to move forward with PrEP. Three studies have positive results, and they're summarized for you here. One is known as IPREX, one TDF2, and one Partners PrEP. And you can see all have been recently published in the New England Journal. All had the same basic idea. Enroll a study population of at-risk individuals. In IPREX, it was gay men. In TDF2, it was 1,200 sexually active adults in Botswana, about half men and half women. And in Partners Prep, it was, uh, as you can see, the largest study listed, nearly 5,000 discordant couples, one positive, one negative, um, in this case aiming towards the, the uh, negative member of the couple in Kenya and Uganda. All of the patients that entered these trials were, we were counseled about safe sex and how to avoid HIV infection, and all were given condoms. So PrEP was really an add-on strategy to what we already do commonly in terms of trying to avoid HIV infection. 
All of these were double-blind, placebo-controlled studies. And you can see similar interventions. So in IPREX, they either received a PrEP regimen with tenofovir FTC or a matching placebo. Same in TDF2. In Partners PrEP, there were three strategies that were investigated, tenofovir by itself, tenofovir FTC, again using the fixed dose, and then a placebo. So two active arms and a matching placebo arm. All three found statistically significant results associated with the use of PrEP, the PrEP regimens for avoiding or preventing HIV infection. In IPREX, the number uh, was 45%, so a 45% reduction in new HIV infections, which was statistically significant. In the TDF2 study, the number was 63%, and the best results were seen in the partner's PrEP. Tenofovir alone, 67% reduction in HIV infection, and tenofovir FTC, 75%. Both of those were better than matching placebo, and statistically, these two numbers were no different than one another. So one question comes up, why the differences in responses? And a lot of it has to do with adherence. So the studies have gone back and looked at people who took the pills and had detectable levels, and as you might imagine, the results were better. For instance, in IPREX, if drug levels were detected in the blood, there was a 92% reduction in HIV infection, reinforcing the fact that just because you prescribe a medication doesn't mean the person's going to take it. They got to take it for it to work. You can see in the partner's prep, if tenofovir was detected in the blood, the efficacy rate rises to almost 90%. The other thing to notice is that uh, the best results were actually seen in discordant couples, which arguably would be the most motivated people to take PrEP, someone who has a regular sexual partner who is known to be HIV positive but is negative themselves, obviously is a high motivating factor. These three studies were submitted to the FDA for approval. As you know, there are two other studies out there that did not confirm positive results. One has been published. It was actually published along with the Partners PrEP and TDF2 studies. This study known as FEMPREP, again published in New England Journal, the study population here were 2,100 plus sexually active women in Kenya, South Africa, and Tanzania. And the design of the study was the same, TDF-FTC versus placebo. The efficacy rate in this study was only 6%, which was not statistically significantly different from the PrEP regimen from placebo. What happened? Why the difference? Well, this is still being investigated, but one key factor in this study was adherence. So women were asked, actually, do you feel you are at risk of HIV infection? And more than half the women said no. Also, reported adherence levels, when they had self-reported adherence levels, they exceeded 80%. But when they used drug levels to determine adherence, it was actually less than 40% of the individuals were actually taking the drug. There's also some supplemental information that tenofovir may not reach levels sufficient in the female genital tract, um, although that's being debated and looked into more. Um, so the final word is not out. Another study that has not yet been published, but we know from press release, is called The Voice. So there was a press release last September. This is uh, the largest study 
um, ever performed, and it's targeting 5,000 sexually active women in South Africa, Uganda, and Zimbabwe. This is looking at two different methods of prevention. So one are microbicides. So they use the 1% tenofovir gel, as used in the Caprisa study that you've heard of before, versus a placebo gel. And then oral tenofovir by itself, TDF-FTC oral, or a matching oral placebo. Recently, the tenofovir alone arm in this study was stopped early by the Independent Data Safety Monitoring Board due to futility. So it looked like tenofovir alone in this study was not significantly protective for HIV infection. Uh, why was that? Again, we don't know the results. People are postulating that adherence may play a role or, again, that pharmacokinetic issues in terms of tenofovir in the genital, female genital tract may um, be important. Let's dig a little deeper. So uh, in the IPREX study, we have some complete data. There, this data is, are available for the other studies, but we'll just focus on this because the data seems similarly between the three positive studies. And again, the point here to illustrate here is that adherence is critical for PrEP to work. So if you look down here, you can see uh, reported adherence. Um, and it varied, the three groups here, less than 50%. 50 to 90% or greater than 90%. And if you look at the efficacy of tenofovir FTC, you can see that it correlates in terms of reducing HIV infection, efficacy rises as adherence levels rose. So again, adherence really critical for PrEP to do its job. What about adverse events or toxicities? You can see uh, the most important ones are summarized for you here. Here's tenofovir and here's placebo. There were more creatinine elevations in the tenofovir FTC group, 28, versus 15 in the placebo group, although that did not reach statistical significance. And in the TDF2 and partners prep study, they actually did not see a difference in creatinine. Headaches were not statistically different. Nausea. 22 events in the tenofovir group versus 10 in placebo does reach statistical significance. And then decreased weight, unintentional weight loss, 34 versus 19, also reached statistical difference. None of the other side effects that were looked at were any different in the two groups. Bone changes are something that we uh, remain concerned about with tenofovir. And of course, when we're aiming at populations who are at risk for HIV, we worry about young people in particular, uh, even adolescents who may still be having bone growth. So this was an assessment in the two arms of what was going on with bone mineral density. Tenofovir FTC is in blue and placebos in red. Um, and what you can see here is there was a reduction in bone mineral density, less than 1% in the spine over 72 weeks. And you can see a dip, uh, small dip in the hip bone mineral density, which does reach statistical significance, and then a rebound later. In the placebo group, as you would expect, really no changes in bone mineral density. What about drug resistance? Again, this is a concern because we use these agents first line. We would not want to engender resistance in the community at large um, because we would lose these agents. So this was looked at very carefully in the IPREX study. And what they found were that there were 10 people who were entering the IPREX study who were later found to be in acute 
HIV infection. They reported, uh, as is typical, nonspecific viral-like syndrome, um, but people were enrolled. Their HIV antibody tests were negative, and only later did they go back and assess uh, HIV RNA, which were positive for these 10 individuals. Again, someone who is in the midst of acute HIV infection and given dual nucleosides, we would expect to see resistance. And in fact, three patients developed resistance. So the 184V associated with 3TC and FTC resistance was seen in two people, and uh, the 184I in a third patient. So resistance does develop if PrEP is administered to someone in the midst of acute HIV infection. Fortunately, the remaining people um, who turned out to be infected over time in the study, none of them were seen to have HIV infection. This same trend was also seen in the TDF2 and the partners PrEP studies. In fact, no PrEP study has yet shown someone who was on PrEP without HIV infection who later developed HIV infection with resistant virus. All of the resistant virus so far from the PrEP studies has been limited to people who are entering the study in the midst of acute HIV infection. So the CDC became aware of the IPREX data, remember that's the study in gay men, and offered interim guidance, uh, which was released last January, and you might be aware of this. So here's what the CDC recommends if you're going to start PrEP in a, a gay man. Before starting, document that they're HIV antibody negative and rule out acute infection. So I think um, practically, if anyone has any symptoms that could be associated with acute HIV infection, delay the start of PrEP, and you may want to send a PCR on that patient. Creatinine clearance should be over 60. That's because of the tenofovir. Screen for sexually transmitted infections, as well as hepatitis B infection, because obviously tenofovir and FTC are active against hepatitis B, and you'd want to know that you were treating that infection. They say prescribe the co-formulated tenofovir FTC one pill a day for 90 days, provide risk reduction and adherence counseling, and provide condoms to anyone that you're starting PrEP on. On treatment, check the HIV antibody every two to three months. Check the BUN creatinine at three months and then annually, again looking for renal toxicity from tenofovir, and continue to provide risk reduction advice, condoms, and assess for STIs um, and treat them if you find them um, every three to six months. So this is the current standard of care for PrEP in gay men in this country. Well, as, as I've already said, the IPREX TDF2 and the Partners PrEP study were taken to the FDA. Um, they considered it carefully. The uh, independent advisory committee voted in favor, and then on July 16th of this year, the FDA approved tenofovir FTC for pre-exposure prophylaxis, or PrEP, in combination with safer sex practices to reduce the risk of sexually acquired HIV infection in adults at high risk. There was some debate about who this would be targeted. Might it be more narrow? But the FDA broadened the indication. So any adult in this country who is thought to be at high risk for acquiring HIV infection presumably could be a candidate for PrEP. Notably, this is the first drug that the FDA has ever approved for HIV infection. So this was a landmark decision. 
Well, again, the TDF2 and the partners PrEP studies included heterosexuals, both men and women. And then I've shown you the data from the FemPrep and Voice study, which questioned the efficacy in women. Again, maybe related to adherence. The CDC looked at all of this data and recently released guidance for using PrEP for heterosexuals. And here's what they say. Target to high-risk individuals, such as those with an HIV-positive sex partner, so a discordant couple, critical for patients to know that they have to take PrEP consistently, discuss risk and benefits with pregnant women or those trying to conceive. Data are incomplete. Most of the safety data we have in pregnant women are from HIV-infected pregnant women. So the safety in pregnancy, uh, incomplete, not clear. PrEP is not a standalone solution, so should be given in the context of other um, prevention interventions. And individuals must be confirmed HIV negative prior to PrEP and monitor their status, side effects, adherence, risk behaviors, and assess for STIs as time goes by. So these are the official criteria now for PrEP in heterosexuals to complement the advice in gay men. The WHO rang in because, of course, uh, new infections are a problem worldwide, and many of these recommendations from this past July echo those of the CDC. Ensure that people seeking PrEP are HIV negative. Encourage continued condom use. Check for pre-existing medical conditions, such as kidney or bone disease. Monitor for adverse events. Help people adhere to daily medication. Ensure an uninterrupted supply. Test regularly for HIV infection and check for resistance in someone who acquires HIV despite using PrEP and uh, gather cost-benefit information. Uh, so that's from the WHO. What about the willingness to take PrEP? This was a uh, um, poster presentation from the recent International AIDS Society meeting in Washington, and I thought it was interesting. They recruited HIV-negative MSM back in August of 2011, and that would have been after the IPREX results were known. And they looked at two cities, Miami and D.C., talked to about 300 men in each of those cities. Um, you can see they were young men, average age was about 30, uh, diverse ethnicity, um, and then had, had these men heard of PrEP at all? So Miami, 15%, twice as many, 30% in D.C. had actually heard about PrEP. So not a lot of knowledge in the community. Knew anyone on PrEP? 3% had taken PrEP themselves, none of them, willing to use PrEP, about half of all the men said that they would be. Um, so this may or may not apply to here we are in 2012 and in New York City, but interesting trends. One of the more interesting posters uh, was a PrEP acceptability study from South Africa. They did focus groups talking about PrEP and they were assessing for acceptability um, and the group said that they liked the idea of non-consensual use, that is, a person could take PrEP and their partner didn't have to know that they were taking PrEP. Um, they saw barriers that uh, antivirals are seen as treatment. There was fear of stigma and risk compensation, meaning that people may engage in more risky behaviors because they think they're being protected by PrEP, uh, risk compensation being the term for that. Intermittent PrEP was favored. Um, and low time, to, to decrease the time someone has to take a med and side effects they thought would be uh, reduced. 
And there were concerns about um, taking PrEP intermittently, which is not currently recommended, um, being more complex. Then they assessed what was the likely sexual exposure of these people in the focus groups. And so this is kind of interesting. So they asked people, how many days a week do you have sex? You'd think we might know that already. But here you go, a median of two sex days in the prior week. And 0% of these focus groups reported daily sex, just reminding us that sex differs for a lot of people. Then they went a step further and asked, uh, what days of the week do you have sex? This won't surprise you, weekends are big when it comes to sex. So Friday and Saturday were the big winners, and the big loser was Tuesday, <laughs> as we all know. Um, sexual forecasting, so could you predict when you were going to have sex next? And only about half could forecast it, but look at the difference between the sexes. 75% of men knew when they were gonna have sex next, but only 32% of the women could predict the next sex act. Um, so that's interesting data from a heterosexual African population. A lot of interest in taking PrEP drugs intermittently rather than once a day drugs. And so what's the data to back that up? Currently, it's really under investigation, but this interesting study was just uh, presented and used data from a PK study that was a companion study to the IPREX study in gay men. And they simply modeled what kind of protective levels people had with two doses of TDFFTC per week, four doses, or taking it one dose per week as currently recommended. And you could see the risk reduction as modeled uh, was 97% or higher for four doses a week, but then begins to drop off with less than four doses a week. Again, current recommendations are one pill once a day, but there are active studies trying to look at less frequent use of PrEP and whether that would be as protective. This is a modeling model, not actual clinical trials data. Well, everything I've said so far about PrEP has been limited to tenofovir FTC. Might we consider other agents? Uh, what are the criteria for PrEP agents? So this was a division of AIDS from the NIH working group, and they defined these eight qualities as desirable for PrEP. Safe penetrates target tissues, such as genital tract and the rectum, protects against HIV infection, that's why we're using it, long-lasting activity for convenient dosing, unique resistance profile or a high barrier to resistance, no significant drug-drug interactions, possibly not a part of current treatment regimens, affordable, easy to use, and implement. So this is sort of a wish list for PrEP. They emphasized that the top four characteristics were more important and that the number one characteristic we should be looking for is safety. Again, because we're talking about prescribing this to HIV-negative people. If you use those criteria and come back to our list of 27 available drugs and you apply all eight characteristics, the list gets very short. And so tenofovir FTC is here, as already uh, mentioned. 3TC would be added to the list. And then the other drugs that could be added potentially are Maraviroc and Raltegravir, although the concern about Raltegravir is it's twice a day with a low barrier to resistance. So no current studies are actually being done with Raltegravir. 
Maraviroc, though, has potential advantages. It's an entry inhibitor, so it acts early in the life cycle of the virus. It now has a safety profile that uh, I was fortunate to get to present at the DC meeting, safe over five years that it's been used. It achieves high tissue levels, so it's actually concentrated in vaginal secretions, threefold, and it's eight to 26 times higher in rectal tissues than in blood, so that's a desirable quality. Um, it prevented HIV infections in an animal model, a mouse model. Drug resistance is uncommon with Maraviroc. Once daily dosing is possible, and probably most compelling is we simply don't use a lot of Maraviroc, so it could be a separate drug used for prevention. Maraviroc for PrEP has some disadvantages. There's actually very limited data in HIV-negative people. One study in rheumatoid arthritis gave Maraviroc for 12 weeks. That's the longest an HIV-negative person has taken the compound. And by the way, it didn't work for rheumatoid arthritis. There is increased pathogenicity of some viruses. It's not been described in Maraviroc people, people who've taken Maraviroc, but in those with the Delta 32 deletion. So that has occurred. Other theoretical safety risks, not labeled for once-a-day dosing, although PK supports it, and some potential for drug-drug interactions. So, uh, and importantly, not active against X4, only R5 viruses, although more than 95% of acute infections are with R5 virus. So we now are currently enrolling a national study of this. HPTN is the Prevention Trials Network 069. Uh, it's a safety study, phase two, forearm multi-site. Uh, we're looking for 400 at-risk HIV-negative gay men. We just enrolled our first patient last week. They're going to be randomized to Maraviroc by itself, Maraviroc with FTC, Maraviroc with tenofovir, or a control arm of tenofovir FTC. So all active arms, and it's placebo-controlled. And again, our primary endpoint is safety, so we're looking at toxicity for treatment discontinuation. Uh, so Cornell is the New York site for this. Did I mention it's open already? And uh, you may ask, well, so we're aiming this at at-risk MSM, but we have just amended the protocol and will be also seeking to enroll 200 women. This is being done at 12 sites throughout the country. So if you're interested, I left some flyers on the back table. There's a couple of other agents in the pipeline that will be interesting for PrEP. Rilpivirine, as you might know, has a long-acting formulation where you can give the whole dose in one shot. So potentially, you could have this compound administered once a month, and that's being explored in a phase one pilot study. There's a new integrase inhibitor that doesn't have a name. Call it 744. This drug has an exceedingly long half-life after injection. You can actually detect levels of it a year after someone gets an, one injection of the drug. So potentially, this could be given once a month, or once every two, or once every three months. And so that's being looked at, too, for treatment and prevention. And then the CD4 uh, attachment inhibitor, which is a monoclonal antibody, ibalazumab, is also being explored for PrEP. What about the cost effectiveness? This has been looked at carefully. This is from the Annals of Internal Medicine earlier this year. Um, a line that people draw with cost effectiveness is often $50,000. If you do that, what you see is it's cost-effective to target high-risk MSM um, and somewhere between 20 and 50 percent. If you got that group on PrEP, it would be cost-effective to use it. In the same model, if you just uh, target the general MSM population, not as cost-effective. In fact, probably not cost-effective. 
So, in summary, PrEP, pros and cons. Pros, we have proven efficacy. It's FDA approved. It can be highly effective in someone that takes it regularly. Generally well tolerated. Drug resistance has not yet been seen. Um, in all the studies, I hadn't mentioned this, they did not see risk compensation, meaning that there was not an increase in risky behavior. What are the cons? Short-term data available, particularly safety data. Currently, daily adherence is required. There are side effects. Drug resistance could occur in acute HIV infection. Risk compensation could lead to decreased condom use, which would be a concern for all of us. The cost and the logistics. Who prescribes PrEP? So now that you've heard all that, how likely are you to prescribe PrEP? This is my last. Okay, so half said more, 40% said the same, 7% said less, and 7% said not applicable. So I'll thank you for your attention and we can move to some questions and answers. So again, either use the bikes or use the uh, cards. Scott, I don't know if you wanna help me out up here. Question? I was curious to hear more of your thoughts about the lack of resistance in the IPREX, folks who became infected that were not acute infections, if that was because of the frequency with which they were tested or the, the guidelines that the FDA has approved, were they the same as what was used in this study? And do we need to watch more carefully than that? Because I would imagine that at some point, left on just PrEP, resistance would develop. Yeah, I think it's a good question and ongoing concern. The, the way that CDC got their recommendation to test every two to three months was extrapolating from what they actually did on IPREX. They tested the men on IPREX every two months for HIV antibody. So is that really something that we're going to be able to do um, in our practices? It's a challenge to get somebody back every two. I think they swung it to every three to give a little more flexibility there. But you're right to point out the last thing we want to do is give someone who has developed HIV infection tenofovir and FTC alone because they will uh, develop resistance to the drugs. Uh, so if I may, just a, it's a great question. So the, the individuals obviously came in with in their seroconversion uh, and were or close to it. In partners and prep, partners prep and TDF2, it was monthly follow-up. Uh, and I thought in IPREX it was monthly as well, but I may be wrong about that. They but actually it, went to every other at some point. Okay. Okay, so let me, we'll just choose one. Is there advice for, against the use of PrEP in discordant couples who are trying to conceive? Short-term condom abandonment in condom-using couples. Yes, great question. The perinatal guidelines were just updated, and they talk about the idea that you should discuss PrEP with a discordant couple, but that there's incomplete data to really make the decision. Clearly, treating the positive person is a good strategy. It's not clear if you also should use PrEP in the negative person, and we may get into this more uh, with an actual case discussion later. Okay, another important question. Any indication for PrEP for active IDUs? 
Any data on decrease in transmission? Great question. So obviously, injection drug users transmit virus differently. They do it through needles and blood. There is no available data right now in injection drug users. There is a big study in Thailand that's fully enrolled that's studying this question, and we may know the results as soon as this year or next year from that study. So right now, no data to support using PrEP in IDUs. A practical question. Has there been any info on whether insurance will cover this? And part two is, what about if the patient is applying for life insurance, will they be labeled high risk? Great questions. The, the first one, I know mostly anecdotally, that some major insurance companies are paying for PrEP. Um, I don't know if the federally supported programs are yet. Um, clearly, FDA approval is the first step in that direction. Um, we'll have to wait and see what that is. Um, Anecdotally, again, if someone is prescribed an antiretroviral, it's difficult sometimes for insurance companies to track that information as to why it's being prescribed. Um, that's anecdotal. I'm not sure about the question, will someone who takes PrEP be labeled as anything um, from an insurance company's point of view? I suppose it could happen, but I don't know. Okay. Uh, the lightning round. is. Was there any difference in efficacy in male-to-female transmission versus female-to-male in partners in PrEP? Thanks. They did look carefully. They broke down the um, efficacy data in both the TDF2 and the partners um, study, and they did not find a difference between men and women. It was equally efficacious in both men and women in both those studies. Is there any data on the number of doses required to achieve protection prior to sexual intercourse? So could this be a morning before pill or a uh, morning after pill? Probably you need to have the drug on board, and that's why it's recommended more than just a single dose. It's not going to work as a single dose, most likely. Uh, the drug does take time to go to the target tissues. Pediatric colleagues, anyone looking at PrEP for pre breastfed infants? Breastfed infants. Um, certainly treating the mother reduces the risk of transmission um, in breastfeeding. I'm not aware of treating the babies. If someone here is a pediatrician and knows that data better than me, please uh, stand up. I think there are plans for some of the uh, monoclonal, at least one of the monoclonal antibodies in that regard for uh, long-term protection. But I think people would be loath to give tenofovir to a newborn. But... Uh, I don't know if any of our impact colleagues are here. They may be able to tell us. Yeah. Is PrEP covered by Medicaid? Uh, not yet, and I honestly don't know how those discussions are going. Again, oftentimes FDA approval leads to approval by government support um, programs, but not always, um, Viagra being a good example of one that's not covered routinely. Uh, and let's, I think, keep going. Criteria for a high-risk versus general MSM and determining cost-effectiveness related to the study you presented? That's a, a really good question. I don't know the answer to that. We'll have to take a look at the article. I, I will say that on our study, we are defying, defining at-risk MSM as someone who's had unprotected anal intercourse, either insertive or receptive, within the last three months with a partner known HIV positive or a partner of unknown serostatus. Different studies have used different criteria for at-risk or high-risk. Are the newer PrEP agents being studied for treatment? 
Yes, so rilpivirine was the first one, which is obviously approved and available right now. The 744 drug with the very long half-life is being, it's in an early stage of development, and it's being explored both as prevention and treatment, and it's an integrase inhibitor. Would you prescribe this to adolescents? Another important question. So adolescents clearly are one of the populations in the U.S. that, where we're seeing increased infections. In fact, if you look at all the risk groups, it's MSM under 30 who ha are the only group where HIV infections are rising in the United States right now. So clearly PrEP would be useful um, for young adult, young adult MSM as well as adolescents. The concerns about bone and renal toxicity come into play. There's incomplete data, but this is being explored right now in adolescents as well. So to demonstrate that we're leaving no population out, did the monkeys have anal sex to prove that PrEP works? Um, they were actually challenged with a rectal challenge, so they actually get, and that's an interesting question, by the way, the, uh, they actually had, uh, the virus was, um, was given through the rectum. They were exposed through the rectum. So it was simulating uh, anal intercourse. Can TDFFTC be used as a morning after pill? So no, we shouldn't be using one dose to try to prevent HIV infection. It won't work for these compounds. Does the CDC recommend testing for renal and bone disease prior to the initiation of PrEP? So they do say assess for concomitant illnesses. Um, remember that creatinine clearance should be over 60, so you do need to check someone's uh, creatinine and probably do a UA before you start. And then bone disease, um, I would assess for previous bone disease. I, I, uh, nobody's suggesting that you should get a DEXA scan at this point on someone prior to starting PrEP. Uh, and you should check whoever asked that. Hepatitis B, you should make sure you know your hep, uh, patient's hepatitis B surface antigen status because you're about to give them two active drugs. Um, so that would be important to know that you're treating that illness in addition to preventing HIV. Okay, uh, we've gone through most of those questions. Uh, there'll be an opportunity to ask Trip at the break, which is coming up. And then we have prep cases, which I think will address some of the residual questions that are on some of these cards. I'd like to thank Trip for a fabulous talk, thank the audience, and we have a break. What time